0: to Track Changes, the podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. My name is Paul Ford.
1: And I'm Gina Trapani.
0: We both work at Postlight in various capacities. Yes. Let me tell the people what Postlight does just real fast. Let's get this done with because uh, I think most people know by this point, if you're holding something in your hand and it happens to be on a phone, not it's not like a piece of fruit or a tissue. Um, We can build that for you. We build big platforms, big, low-level APIs, services, things that run real fast that serve millions of people. And we build the apps and the, the web pages and the websites that talk to those platforms. And we do it for giant media companies, and we do it for insurance, and we do it for finance, and we do it for all the clients who we love. And so If you want to get in touch with us and talk about that, you send an email to hello at postlight.com. This concludes the advertising portion and we will move on to a very interesting interview.
1: Ellen Ullman is with us.
0: I've been reading Ellen Ullman before I knew anything and I still don't know anything except what I learned from Ellen Ullman. Me too. It's about right. So let's talk to her. She is a Technologist, career programmer, and also a very, very fine essayist and novelist. So you don't you don't get that combination very often.
1: And she's also she doesn't know this yet, but she is also my mentor. I have made her my mentor. I read all of her stuff and follow her, her I, advice. I think
0: that's a great idea. I've been doing the same thing for years. All right, let's talk to Ellen.
1: All right, good morning, everyone. I'm so excited about our guest today here in the in the in the studio, Paul. We're joined by Ellen Ullman. Author of, well, many things, uh, but most recently, Life and in Code, incredible memoir about uh, a long career in programming. I'm so excited to talk about this morning. Good morning.
2: Good morning to you.
0: Good morning. This it's is a ex- pleasure
2: to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: This is exciting. I read Close to the Machine, it would have been, I guess, around 1997. So yes. this, this interview has been 20 years in the making for me. <laughs> Pretty cool.
2: Well, I better live up to that. Tell me
1: a little bit about this book.
2: Well, I didn't want to write it. I uh, felt that I had been writing and talking about technology for years, two decades. And I wrote a novel called By Blood. And uh, the New York Times online said, Ellen Ullman abandons technology for something else, you know. But I, I did feel, once I moved on, that it forced me to have new thoughts and to think about The past and the relationship of the past to what was happening snapshot by snapshot going forward, and to bring it up to today and see the curve of things that were put in motion in 1996. The first boom, the stocks crashed, but the ideas lived on. I feel one of the problems I encounter is that, as everyone feels, that what's happening in their own time is new. And really, it may be new, but but it's not new. It's a recent unfolding of patterns that had been in motion for decades.
0: Going through the first part, which overlaps with close to the machine, what struck me is a lot of things you are talking about are words and terms and concepts that are not just familiar, but utterly current. Like the style of programming, thinking about the windowing systems and so on. And we, we do that. And not only that, we just reinvent it constantly. Like if I go out to this office, we're recording at Postlight. We are building window components that open and shut and, and, and thinking about the lifetimes of these components in the system. Life cycle. Life cycle. Thank you. And it, it doesn't change. The, the patterns, everything's faster. We're now sort of layering it onto the, onto the web in new ways. But the, the patterns are the same.
2: What really disturbs me is how the front end of the web works. Now, I understand
0: that that it's designed
2: to minimize transmission or messages to the server Mm -hmm. over the wires of the Internet. It looks like, to me, exactly like RPG screens on mainframes, where you fill out all the things in the form and you hit enter. Actually, it was called send, and it went to the mainframe, and then it came back with an error. You fix that one. Went to the mainframe. Came back with an error. Does this sound familiar? This is the way web pages work. They don't come back and tell you here is all the errors you fix, and you can fix them in one pass, right? This to me is uh, okay stupid. <laughs> I know it, it's it's designed for the technology, but not for the human being.
0: But they're coming for us now. Now it's all dynamic when doing toolkits on the front end, bundling data up to send to the back end. Like it's that batch mode that you're talking about, they're blowing it up. Facebook in particular is leading. They don't want it anymore. So that document version is about to go. We're not going to have it anymore.
2: Hurrah. (laughs) How many years has this taken?
0: (laughs) Many. Although, see, I get nostalgic because anyone could get in there and make that HTML page and publish yeah. their stuff.
1: That's the thing, right? Like the, the the new update takes you farther and farther away from the machine. Really, I mean, when I look at web development and read, and, you know, reading this book, and most of what I do is web development, I'm like, wow, I'm very far away from from the internals, and I'm building this virtual DOM on top of the browser that does a bunch of stuff that I'm not even really sure because I used you know some toolkit to get started. We should maybe talk about a little bit. You talked a lot, actually, about building tools to make things easier for users, including developers, and, you know, kind of what that means.
0: Well, and this is sort of a big subject, right? Because the web happens at this very high altitude yeah, where you're making pages and increasingly now you're kind of retrofitting components into a page style Mm -hmm. interaction. Yeah. But... You're getting further and further away from how a computer actually works yes. as you're doing this. Like we're, we're many levels of abstraction up. And one of the things you talk about a lot is, is sort of proximity to the hardware. The further down you go in the stack, the more sort of – I'm, I'm making air quotes as I say this – the more real a programmer you are. And this seems to kind of show up a lot. Is someone a real programmer or not in your, in your work?
2: Well, first of all, these higher level 2s are absolutely necessary. Why reinvent everything? And not everyone can go, you know, work on the Unix kernel or the Linux kernel. It's, that doesn't make sense. Right. But what we sacrifice as we go higher and higher or further from the kernel, literally, is that we understand less and less about the, the basic workings of mm-hmm. a computer. And when things go wrong, it's hard to know exactly where that wrong is coming from.
1: Yeah, so for expediency, you're, you're sacrificing understanding, a deep understanding that can bite you on the other end.
2: Well, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't keep reinventing system calls. Sure. I mean, at one level you can. Mm-hmm. But do you think everyone's going to send system calls to the kernel or begin with machine language and write compilers, uh, device drivers? Oh, that's nasty stuff.
0: See, I'm a a self-taught programmer, and so there was a point where I became ambitious and I wanted to know more about how it worked. And so I started to dig in, and I remember I was writing some Java. And I got my first full stack trace experience. And for those who don't know, when you are working in Java and you hit a bug, it shows you sort of all the layers – of what went wrong and those things can – and they're all indented. So it's this endless cascade of error and it, it kind of shows you where your problem is and it is –
1: Hopefully toward the top you w- see something that you recognize. That's
0: right. And it, But it, it took me I would say two years to really understand what was going on. Like I just couldn't make sense of what the hell it was trying to tell me. And this was the easy way. This was supposed to be the the like, look, no, we've documented everything. All the way up this call tree, you're going to see where you are. Is it call tree? I'm, I'm having a bad jargon day today. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: fine. Well, you know, people on the other end are not, uh, you know, scoring. They have they pieces are. of paper. Oh, or, Ellen, they,
0: they are. are. <laughs> There's a thousand engineers out there going, oh, I knew it. I knew it.
2: Are we talking to a thousand engineers?
0: Oh, easily. Oh, God. Yeah, I I'm it's, leaving. It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'm, going
2: to, I'm going to get hell. I mean, one of the <laughs> things that happens, especially as a woman, is that, when I make technical errors, I get this thing is like, well, the bitch doesn't know what the hell she's doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, of course, everyone makes errors. Yeah, I mean, one time I fixed what I thought was a fix of the bug, and I went to lunch, and I brought down the entire development system. And mm-hmm. everyone sat there for an hour and hated me. Fine, <laughs> I know, that was really bad. But it's not that other people don't do the same thing. Yeah, It, it happens all too frequently.
0: You know, there was a point at Yahoo where they had a, an actual like silver cup for the person who broke the system the worst that year. And they, <laughs> it was, I think it was called the Grant Pattis Hall Award. And it was um, – there's this guy, Kellen McRae, who we both know. He won it one year because I think he brought down all of Yahoo Chat while trying to like fix Flickr.
1: <laughs> and,
0: but I do like – I'm trying to think it would be different like – That's a very dude thing.
1: I visited Google's campus at one point. I think it was the Gmail uh, area and they had these screens up uh, all around the office. And the person whose bug was blocking like the the build that it was had to happen, their face was on the screen. Their face. Their face (laughs) with like the ticket number and description and being like, this is the person who's blocking.
2: Development by humiliation. Yeah,
1: it was. I was, you know, (laughs) I was amazed. I was like, I don't think I'd want to work here. I don't know if I can handle this. But, you know, people are motivated dif- in different ways, I guess. I guess some people are motivated by humiliation. That's I
2: don't bad. Don't do that. No one is motivated by humiliation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I really
2: feel that's horrible. Yeah, I feel like some personal that's a, trainers, <laughs> their business
1: model is humiliation. <laughs> it's not human. It's, I agree. Not,
2: it's not civil.
1: Mm-hmm. It's right. not
2: collegial. Right. The constant quantification of what people are doing is the most alarming thing for me. And the fact that it almost comes out of programming and seeps up into the world. Journalists, how many clicks? Mm -hmm. How many responses? How many many tweets based on what you did? You're always counting, and that is the nature of, of quality. It doesn't speak to what human beings can actually do.
0: One of the things I really enjoy in the book is you come back to debugging a lot. And there's a story in there about, which I think it was the early 80s, you decided you needed to become familiar with mainframe programming, right? So for the listeners here, mainframe, we're all using phones and desktop computers, but there is a whole class of machines that are huge and vast and often created by IBM that are, could be a hundred times more powerful than, than the ones you're used to. But you decided you needed to get in there and use mainframes. And there's a story in there about uh, finding a bug that then sort of took over your mind for a while. And first of all, do you remember how long you worked on it? I, well, a little over a year. I planned to
2: leave after a year. You know, you, you want to put it on your resume, you've got to have a year. Mm-hmm. These days it's like six months, I guess. But then I had this bug and, and I began to imagine the bug as a glamorous lady. <laughs> the lady vanishes, the lady reappears. This, this was a kind of bug that seemed to be fixed and then came back. And I was determined month after month, week after week to find this bug. And uh, over the course of great frustration and time, and, uh, there was a legless man that sat in front of the, this place where I worked. And he was there in the early morning selling pencils. He sat there selling pencils and I became friendly with him and I bought a pencil every day. And while I was looking for this bug, now in the olden days, I'm getting out my rocking chair, you got a big printout. Mm -hmm. We did have a screen, but you couldn't really look at it. The libraries were primitive.
0: It was just the big sort of lined paper with the green and the white. Yeah, and it
2: came in, you know, big folders, you know, Mm -hmm. plastic covers. And so I began ordering piles of printouts, and they all thought I was insane, that my office had mountains of, program- of bound printouts. Mm-hmm. And in order to follow the trail of where I had to go back to, I was sticking pencils in in, in the... Uh, in the printouts. No,
0: because you had all these pencils. I had
2: all these pencils. I had a whole box of pencils. <laughs> and so I, I used them to keep track of where I had to go back to and uh, would put marks on them. And it was a ridiculous thing. but, And I felt, just for the sake of this legless man in a wheelchair, I somehow I owed it to him. And when I finally fixed it, I, I don't know, I, I felt that I had paid him back somehow. Mm -hmm. And also, when I found the bug, it turned out to be something a a prior programmer had done really stupidly. So this glamorous lady I expected to find, waiting with a cigarette, saying, aha, at last you found me, (laughs) turned out to be this complete anticlimax. I do (laughs) want to go on to say that as I went on, I did stupid things myself, and I had more compassion for this other programmer mm-hmm. who had completely screwed me up. I liked working on a mainframe. It is a powerful... It, it was an old system in those days, a uh, 370. You get the sense of how it rolls programs in and out, in and out. It doesn't have multiple processors. Its speed is what allows it to swap things in and out. Mm-hmm. And so marveled at how these different programs were running and the question of precedence which we still have Mm -hmm. Uh, it's always a question symmetrical multiprocessing has to decide you know what has to go first and the whole idea of what's more important and what can run more quickly and you have to describe the resources you're going to need You had to say well i need two disk drives i need this much memory i need the printer and you had to spell out ahead of time what resources you were going to need and That's quite primitive if you think about it, but it made you think about, well, what does, what does this, how does it relate to the machine? What pieces of it do I have to describe in addition to the multiple modules and the space you'll need and so on? I learned a great deal from that.
0: You know, it's the physicality is really interesting, right? Compared to now. Yeah. I'm
1: trying to imagine having to account for all the resources I will need to run the web page that I'm building. Um, and it actually it's 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 important, especially when you're building internet connected apps for places that don't have great internet connections. Um, but that's like a lesson <laughs> that young particularly young engineers have to learn and relearn. But
2: one of the things I would love if it's more engineers understanding the humanities because that's when they will learn their effect on human life and social life. If they have that background of understanding deeply the emotions of human beings and how they interact and their desires thwarted or fulfilled i i do think the lack of the humanities and now this is coming in. I hear that Google's hiring philosophers, but philosophers are kind of mathematical <sighs> thinkers.
0: But don't you think this is I mean, so the Bell Labs used to send people out to get master's degrees and and in, in the humanities. Or actually Bell did, and then sort of to broaden the the focus of the place. I feel that they always see it as a nice bolt-on. And I remember in the bug really clearly, because it's the the first sort of technical novel I ever read that also went deep on Middlemarch, right? Like it, there was a lot, <laughs> of, <laughs> there was a lot of play in there, and a lot of sort of like Middlemarch was used to devastating effect in the Bug, and it was it's. Uh, I won't spoil it, but if you're a Middlemarch fan and you like Windows, pro- like classic event loop programming, this is the book for you, and it was for me. And I just – it's such a hard reach. I feel that – because I've been thinking about this for years and years and it it feels that the humanities doesn't want a lot to do with them, which is part of the humanities fault. Like the humanities wants the power and the access and the distribution. But nobody, aside from a few people now in the digital humanities, is particularly interested in like – Getting into the ethos and the rhythm of like a good event loop in JavaScript and understanding why that might have a cultural significance.
2: One of the things I talk about in the book at some length is the desire to mix these worlds, mm-hmm. and they will enrich each other. Not everyone's going to learn to program, become a professional programmer. It's just try your hand at it. Demystify code. It's not magic.
0: Are you as careful a coder as you are a writer? Well... That's
2: for people to evaluate. That's Mm, for other people to evaluate. I think you never can evaluate your own work. I mean, my measure is I'm not embarrassed by it.
0: Great. That's a very
2: good measure.
1: Do you miss it? Writing code actively every day?
2: No. At a certain point, I love learning new things. You have to. You you can't stay in the profession because there are still mainframes out there uh, with new operating systems on them. But if I was still working on operating systems, I would feel like I'm missing the entire technical revolution of my time. And so the new, you have to keep up with it over and over and over. And at a certain point, I decided I'd had enough of that. On the other hand, I felt that experience was is not being valued. The things that are happening now have happened before in a different form. There are roots in there, from which people can learn. There are lessons in the past, and it's important to at least see something of the history of your own profession, have a sense of it, so you can understand the power of what you have now. Mm-hmm. The systems we have now are are onions. You know, you've mm-hmm. got the stuff in the middle, and you build tools around it, and around it, and around it. You can't scrap all that and really start over. So part of it is you're saying, well, you're taking this stuff that we you know wrote, I don't know, 20 years ago, and we're putting that in the middle of stuff that we wrote 10 years ago, and we're wrapping something around that we five years ago, two years ago. Oh, now it's brand new. And so it does work itself out, and the, the understanding that there's stuff under there that was written a long time ago. And you have to take lessons from the people who who created those systems. You need to know a little bit about mm-hmm. POSIX. And that is inevitable. Everyone wants to be at the forefront. Everyone wants to be working on the new thing. Up until But of course, that's, that's natural. I mean, so did I. So did everybody in this room, right?
0: Up until a few years ago, though, I followed a Twitter account called Real Cobalt Jobs because just in case— I was going to – I was like, you know, let's keep an eye on that just in case it all goes south. I'll get a couple short sleeve shirts, some neckties, and I'll just <laughs> – <laughs> I'll learn COBOL and I will write – because, you know, I look at COBOL. I, I went and learned it, enough of it and I was like, well, it's a very nice data description language built in there. Like it's, it's got some perks. It's a little verbose and bad, but that's OK. Now it's time to talk about Grace Hopper. Yeah, that's yeah. Okay, who sure. Were,
2: who was the creator of Cobol? Essentially, mm-hmm. she's known for that. But what she's less known for and needs to be known for is that her team created what is essentially the first modern compiler, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and higher level language than a compiler. So you weren't writing code for a single machine or a single environment or a single chip, and this was revolutionary. And now she in the entire era of programming as we know it. uh, Everything else had to be written for a particular computer. Now, this is what she really needs to be known for. She really put in the germ of of where we are now. And, uh, you know, quite a history. I mean, there is a conference now called the Grace Hopper Conference. Mm -hmm. And especially women are... Wanting to say, look, this is person who provided the foundation uh, of your entire profession. And, well, okay, that's my Grace Hopper rap. <laughs> no, but I mean <laughs>
1: – It comes back to this empathy thing, right? This like kind of looking at this broad problem and being like, how do how do I make the lives of so many programmers easier? Let's back up and be like, make something that you know allows you to write in a – uh, a more human way and compile and run across many different um, uh, devices. I, you know, the empathy thing—it keeps me awake at night. I manage engineering teams, and you know, how do you instill empathy for users, whether your users are engineers or other people?
2: The, the issue of empathy and women mm-hmm. is a very dangerous path. Yes, I had a reporter from the Times after the James Damore memo came out. Your engineers mm-hmm. out there know. I don't describe that. Mm. She, uh, in, you know, called to interview me, and well, you know, don't you think you know, w- women have more empathy, and isn't that a good thing? And I just went, why are we going there? Yeah, I, I can't say that I have more empathy than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Women can be as bitchy and as unaware of others as anyone, and we should have the freedom to be bad. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely.
2: I don't, I, I don't want to have empathy for it. Demand that of everyone, and especially this is a role given to women.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, And I often wonder, like, am I taking this on because I feel like it should be my role? And and it absolutely shouldn't. Um, There's a section in your book where you talk about the programmer's mindset that, like, really resonated with me, this idea that, like, you kind of, I think you call it mind time, that when you're deep in kind of the coding process, you're not... Working synchronously with other human beings, you're off in another space, you're not washing your clothes or sleeping or eating or I I get annoyed when I need to get up to go to the bathroom, if I'm really deep in something, and how I am extremely capable of that. And most days, I just want everyone to leave me alone so that I can go to that space, and it's funny because you know my career is pulling me toward supervisory roles and sales roles, uh, uh, things that require like meetings and talking to people, <laughs> and I, I miss I miss coding a lot. And I'll say you know a cocktail party is where things are like light and easy. I'll be like, but you know I love programming, but the truth is it's kind of a compulsion. Uh, you know some people do heroin, and and I write code because I go to this like other place where I actually don't have to deal with anyone else's needs. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, I love
2: going into a dark room <laughs> with three humming machines and the flicker of a nice big, you know, yes. screen and closing the door. And yep. don't bother me. Yeah.
1: And I've there got is one purpose. Just wonderful part of it. it is. I love that. It was my, this is my favorite. One of my favorite moments in the book is when you said, you know, uh, you know, especially when I had a tiresome house guest and I kept thinking, I just I got to go fix that bug. I really should go fix that bug. <laughs> and so, coding as like escapism. Is it really, is that for me in in some ways? I, and I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting no, no. my my impression onto your writing. No, it it is. Uh, it's an
2: escape into something extremely rewarding. Yes, there is a, a sea of thought in there that is stimulating. Yes, and it is addictive, mm-hmm. but it, it gives you pleasure. Yes, I mean, one of the parts that I hope to convey in in anything I write is my love of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: There's so much power in this business. There's economic power, but there's also just the power to do previously inhuman things. And I, I think, you know, all three of us think about this, right? Like, how do you distribute that power? How do you get it back? And I, You know, it's education is one path. You know, writing about it, communicating about it. I don't, I'm I'm not optimistic that we can get it a meaningful tech curriculum into education right now. I don't know if we can. I just don't know if the culture wants it. It wants the kind of like, hey, technology is really changing things, but that the actual effort to make it part of the curriculum and connect it to other things, I don't know if we're going to do it.
2: Connecting to other things. Mm -hmm. Not saying you're going to go in a room and be involved in this addictive activity, mm-hmm. which can be pleasurable, but connecting it to other things, looking at code, looking at programs in a social light, in a civic light, in light of uh, relationships. You know, what has Tinder done if you look at these other relationships, in mm-hmm. things you've read? Compare and contrast, as the teachers are fond of saying. That's kind of what I mean. Not that everyone should code. But everyone should learn enough to connect what's happening with coding, with engineering, with technical products, with other things they know
0: and have learned. You're calling for a school of technology criticism. (laughs) I'd I'd like to go to that school. Comparative comparative operating systems. I think that would be healthy for us all. I think some of the output from that could be great. Let me leave us all with a question. when you're programming at home doing something interesting and a loved one comes to the to the doorway of your office, what is the reaction?
1: My spouse and I really had to talk about like like when I'm typing anything that I say to you <laughs> while I'm typing because you've said something to me like I can't it's like think instead think of me drunk like i'm just I'm impaired <laughs> i'm not I'm not equipped to have a productive sure. interaction in, with in, my five year old I need to stop yeah okay. <laughs> Well,
2: I put a yellow sticky on the door that says, is this important?
1: No, that's well, great. Is this
2: really important? <laughs> yeah. Which means leave me alone. Uh, that's the way I handle it. Yeah. Because there are things that if you're interrupted, you lose it.